Oh, here we go. The greatest stories never told has a spono. And it's none other than our legendary mates at Cooper's Board Store. Cooper's is an institution on the New South Wales mid-north coast. But the good news is Cooper's Board Store is available online for everyone. Over a thousand boards in stock. It's Australia's largest in-stock board store. It's located in Coffs Harbour or you can shop online at coopersboardstore.com.au. The crew are shipping surfboards Australia-wide every day and offer top-line brands like JS Industries, Firewire, SharpEye, Mayhem Lost, DHD, Stacey, MR, Chili, Aloha, the Mick Fanning Soft Tops, Quickie, Roxy, and more. And you can also get your weddies from Coops as well. Rip Curl, O'Neill, Bisler, Billabong, Quickie, Roxy, they're all in there. Get in now to get your orders in for Chrissy. coopersboardstore.com.au 50 years locally owned since 1969. Fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seldom tells. On distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs, immortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never Today's episode of The Greatest Stories Never Told is a profile of Matt Elks, our most recent guest on Call Lords. It's called Scum Valley's Finest and was first published in Tracks Magazine. They called us drug-fucked loser degenerates. And you know what? We fucking beat them. And you know what? We fucking were. Because that's what surfing was, fumes Matt Elks, the eccentric, world-weary godfather of inner-city Sydney surfing, We're in his Balinese lair on the island's forgotten north coast as he tells the story. He's on his feet, shirtless, in a pair of green cargo shorts, with his trusty vaporizer full of a mysterious local serum in one hand and the other extended threateningly at his would-be antagonist, former Channel 9 CEO and Bondi surfer David Gingell. He had all the names, fucking Crammy, Bill Powers, all the money and the sponsors, And we were the mongrels, the punks, the fucking roots of the suburb, he continues. The story he's telling regards the rivalry that tore our hometown Bondi in two. On one side was David Gingell, the son of Bruce Gingell, better known as the first man to appear on television in Australia, and the godson of Australia's original media tycoon, Kerry Packer. Gingell's Bondi-based board riders club, ITN, aka In The Nude, included one of the great lineups of 1980s Australian surfing talent. Among them, world tour surfers Richard Cram, Shane Horan, Rod Kerr, and Simon Law, along with formidable local pros Bill Powers, Dave Davidson, and the Weber brothers, Will and Ben. 
They would go on to win the 1986 National Surf League Championships held at Bondi, establishing the suburb briefly as a genuine powerhouse in competitive surfing. And that's where the beef begins. Elksy contends he should have been in that team. He was in the form of his career at the time, having broken through for his first win on the highly competitive APSA circuit, a feeder for the World Tour, which was the top 16 at that time. He won the event at Portsy, where he defeated a field that included Ross Clark-Jones, Bill Power, Tony Ray, and Matt Branson. Elksy says he was also winning ITN's Opens division when the team was chosen. I won it, and I was left out, and I wasn't given an explanation, he says. The son of a professional gambler, street hustler, and wife beater who, quote, necked himself at 56, Elksy's words, not mine. Elksy experienced limited success as a pro surfer during the 80s and 90s. His main claim to fame was being the first Australian ever to ride for the underground Hawaiian surf company, Dahui. For a period, he was also their licensee in Australia until the deal soured amidst a blizzard of cocaine and heroin. I was never a junkie. I'd use it occasionally, says Elksy. When he was overlooked for the ITN team, he formed a breakaway club, Bondi Board Riders, which still exists today. To the many lost boys, house rats sons of single mothers, punks, skaters, surfers, street artists, rockers, ravers, rappers, dealers, breakdancers, groovers, and aspiring gangsters, Elksy was God. He was dad, he was a mentor, and an invaluable source of self-belief. He gave the working class crew a bit of belief in themselves, and that was proven when Bondi board riders beat ITN, says Will Weber, a longtime friend of Elksy's who surfed for both he and Gingell's club ITN. He gave them belief and goals to aim at, which there wasn't before. We, in ITN, were definitely the elite surfers, and they weren't included in a sense, even though that's how we got good, by surfing against those guys every day, says Will. As the son of a battered and broke single mother as I was, Elksy was all of those things to me. We were living in Francis Street, South Bondi at the time, with our flatmate Sandy and her boyfriend Yapama from Cape York in Arnhem Land. I must have been about eight. I remember the day Elksy came home from Hawaii with a chipped tooth from surfing backdoor and the rights to sell Dahui. I remember playing cricket in the street and watching him chase a thief down the road, shirtless, in a pair of blundstones after he knocked off a board from the rack outside his store. I remember watching him leap onto the roof of the getaway car as it took off, Jean-Claude Van Damme style, forcing the crook to drop the board it was being held out the window before Elksy Commando rolled across the asphalt, picked up the board and walked back down the street past us. His humble anti-establishment shoebox of a surf store on the corner of Francis Street and Campbell Parade was my introduction to surfing. The smell of sex wax, the neon stickers and skate wheels beneath the glass cabinet, the fresh Prince of Bel-Air parachute pants and bomber jackets, the bloodshot eye bulging speed freak iconography on the walls are as vivid in my memory today as they ever were. It was a utopia of underground 80s and 90s surf culture, a place where you could find yourself buying a bar of wax off Buttons, Shane Haran, Jake Brown or Rob Trujillo while Elksy rolled a joint out the back. For all that's been written and said about Bondi in the last 10 to 15 years, it's remarkable how little of it has come from the people who for generations worked, built and ran the joint. Of all the folklore paved over during the great gentrification, nothing says Scum Valley more than the beef between Elksy and Ginge. With a smug glint in his eye, he recalls the time it turned physical on the promenade. The exact details remain contested. Gingell refused to comment. 
though according to Elksy, he just returned from a stint in Thailand at a Muay Thai kickboxing camp when a heated argument with Ginjul culminated in Ginjul, quote, pushing his finger into my breastbone, says Elksy. Elksy let rip a couple of jabs in response. The second one opened him up and spilled a bit of his blood on the promenade down there with the thousands of other stains and shit. And I thought that was perfect. It showed him what he was in Bondi. Just another fucking stain on the pavement, laughs Elksy, relishing in the poetry of it all. Their feud would serve as the foundation for Elksy's debut novel, Scum Valley, a barely fictionalised account of the skullduggery and degeneracy that preceded the gentrification. His beef with Ginjal was complicated. Everyone had friends on both sides, and many surfers competed for both clubs at different times. Bondi Pro and 1986 ITN team member Dave Davidson says Elksy's non-selection in the Surf League team was justified. There was no conspiracy against him. There was just basically the bottom line that he wasn't consistently good enough to get in that team. He might be good one day, and was just horrible the next, says Davo. As Elksy's relationship with Ginjul deteriorated, Ginjul came to represent everything that was wrong about Bondi and the world in Elksy's eyes. He was the corporate Teflon kid coming down from Vaucluse, the nearby rich suburb, looking for a bit of street cred, says Elksy. Will Weber, along with several others from the suburb I spoke to, watered down the beef between the pair, as well as the characterisation of Ginjul as a shallow, squeaky clean rich kid. It was pretty silly, says Weber. Elksy being from the beach could find a division between he and Ginj and made him his most popular enemy. I think Elksy found an easy guy to have a gripe against in Ginge, but he did as much as he should have done with the club ITN. There were no free handouts, he says. Others told me of a Ginjul that did as much for the suburb as anyone, including footing rehab bills for local surfers who fell into drug and alcohol addiction, sourcing sponsorship and putting his own money into both ITN and later the Bondi Board Riders Club, and generally being there for members of the community any time they needed it. As one of Ginjul's friends told me, if Ginge was the enemy of the working class surfer at Bondi, he did a pretty crap job of showing it. He's still helping Bondi board riders today, and where's Elksy? Elksy was from money too, though a different kind of money to Ginjul. Elksy's father was from blue collar Marylands in western Sydney, but ran away from a troubled and at times abusive home aged 14. He moved into a boarding house around the corner from Randwick Racetracks where he served an apprenticeship of sorts in the art of gambling and petty criminality. By the time Elksy was born, his dad was one of the most recognised racing and gambling identities in the state. They loved him down there. He was respectful, he was smart, he paid attention and he knew his horses, says Elksy, adding, He wasn't a criminal, my father, but we'd always be getting rid of hot stuff from the house. The cops would be on the take. That was just Australia back then. Elksy remembers his dad winning and losing fortunes in a single day at the track, sums of up to $100,000, and that was in the 1970s, he says. And he'd lose it. The stress of it was pretty full on, says Elksy. Some years the family would be living in the, quote, mansion up on the hills, and others, the poorhouse. The big windfalls meant Elksy was sent to the same prestigious private school as Ginjal, Cranbrook in Rose Bay, where he was also introduced to the great Australian surfing dynasty, the Weber family, Greg, Dan, Monty, Will, Ben and John. When things got heated at home, as they often did, Elksy would hide out at the Webbers, to the point their father would often have to send him home. They'd call me the seventh Weber, recalls Elksy. They are, as the famous Australian journalist George Negus says, Australian surfing royalty. 
The one constant in Elsie's childhood and adolescence was stress, which often manifested itself in anger and vicious beatings dished out in the home. My father struggled with his anger management. He used to bash my mum and that, but he loved us and he'd try and make up for it in other ways, says Elsie. Anger and atonement are traits Elsie has inherited from his dad. Whether it's buying the local village kids in Bali icebox after cracking the shits of them, helping battlers in Bondi with anger and self-esteem issues, or introducing the current editor of Tracks to Metallica to say sorry for almost drowning him in the surf one day. He's long seen himself as a defender of the vulnerable and an antagonist of the rich. These rich cunts carry on as if they fucking earned it. As if because you're poor or you're fucked up, you're an idiot, you're dumb. They fucking belittle us and they turn us into their slaves. That's the way it was and that's the way it's always been, says Elksie. As global capital and investment poured into Bondi throughout the 90s and noughties, Scum Valley became something else. The stink pipe on the beach, which used to spew effluent straight into the lineup, creating a consistent left and right rip bowl that sometimes resembled a river mouth, was removed. The water turned blue, and the jewel in Sydney's crown began to shimmer. Investors bought up the cheap housing, raised the rents, and pushed the low-income folk out. When they fixed up the pavement in Bondi, it raised the rents, and the Maoris were the first to disappear, recalls Will. Adding of Bondi... Sadly, it's gone the Ginge way rather than the Elks way. A combination of social and economic forces meant Will, like many other Bondi originals, became part of a mass exodus from the area. Mum and I didn't go far, just over the hill to Bronte, where we moved into a mouldy one better with a sunroom until we could find another beaten up shithole in Bondi to move back into. It was the year 2000 by then, and Elksy was long gone. There was no option to stay and live my days out in my home suburb. Otherwise, we all would have stayed, he says today, adding, How fucked up has this country become when it puts the real estate industry above the well-being of a community? Today, aged 30 years old, I was desperate to track Elksy down. I had a few questions that needed answering and some, and some character flaws that either needed validating or recalibrating. I'd received word he was holed up on Bali's forgotten north coast where he was attempting to create a utopia. So I went up river to find him. Bali goes back 10 years in time for every 10 kilometers traveled. Soon enough, you're in suffocating poverty. Homes in Warungs fashioned from bamboo, women squatting by the roadside, slapping freshly caught fish, and not even a whiff of the tourist dollar. Lime green, jagged volcanic mountains rise out of the earth. A village girl reminiscent of Tyra Banks walks the edge of the road. The ferry at Padang Bai releases a cavalcade of trucks forcing you to the furthest extremity of your lane as they overtake each other. Baking, pregnant heat gives way to a monsoon and flash flooding forces you into a roadside shelter where the Balinese carpenter building it offers you the rest of his tahu garang. That's fried tofu. He warns of dangers up ahead. The Mount Agung volcano has erupted, sending cold lava across the road, and the road might be closed, he tells me. 
I press on anyway, winding slowly around the mountains, where I look out over a vast patchwork of rice paddies running from the base of the cliffs to the coastline. A young woman sits in a thatched hut, guarding rice crops from crows and scrolling a knockoff iPhone. It's dusk when I arrive at Elksy's and the local Manku, aka village priest, who runs his homestay, takes me to see him. I find him sitting on top of an artfully manicured concrete lookout, he's a tiler by trade. Shirtless, in a sarong, staring pensively out to sea. Elksy bra, I yell. Smivy, still chuffin, he asks, handing me his trusty vaporizer. The good oil, he confirms. Fuck yeah, I reply. We sit there as a stormy dusk rolls in. Smoke rises into the sky from fires along the shoreline. Outrigger fishing boats bob in the distance. Stillness descends. Clarity reigns. All his time in isolation has given Elksy a rare kind of lucidity. In a couple of sentences, he can take you from the grassroots to the top of the biosphere, which I learn ends 10 kilometers above us. Globalization is about the corrupting and robbing of indigenous cultures and replacing them with a new one for the sole purpose of selling them products, he begins, in what is the first of two days worth of epic sermons on the manifest and multitude failures of late-stage capitalism. He can't stand Australia anymore, can't fathom how, in a land as abundant and resource-rich as ours, the living can be so difficult and leave us so little time to do the things we love. For a place where the living was so easy and so good, I just don't know how it managed to tie itself up in such a knot. It's a fucking mess. Greed, he says. Elksy is convinced the system is about to crash, and when it does, he knows where he'd rather be. Where would you rather be when the lights start going out on major cities? You don't want to be in one. People will start killing each other within a month, he says. I'll be out here with plenty of fresh fish, my own vegetables, Plenty of rice and a few waves out the front, he laughs, looking out over a patch of reef and sand which entertains fairly consistent short-period windswells up to four feet. His resentment of capitalism and its cruel inefficiency is manifested in a series of schemes and scams over the years. The eco-village utopia he's in the process of creating is the latest one, but professional surfing was arguably the first. It was the legendary shaper Rodney Dahlberg who first convinced him to have a tilt at the tour. Elksy was doing a stint in Angari at the time, and Dahlberg, who was hooking him up with cheap boards, suggested he take his game on the road to New Zealand. He did well in a couple of contests, earning the attention of hot-buttered honcho and surfing immortal Terry Fitzgerald, who would become a defining influence on his surfing life. I owe a lot to Fitzy. He was so good to me, says Elksy. Another of Elksy's big surfing influences was Derek Hind, who he met on that same trip to New Zealand. Derek with his eye and all that. I thought he was a pretty amazing guy with all his setbacks and how positive he was. Basically, he instilled in me just to believe in myself. And he told me, you're a great surfer, Elks. Just go hard. You can beat anyone, he recalls. Elksy spent months in Hawaii each winter, teaming up with Scum Valley legend Shane Haran and pipe master Robbie Page, who'd both won hard-earned respect and earned countless important relationships along the Seven Mile Miracle. Among Elksy's many friends was Johnny Boy Gomes, who he shared a shaping sponsor with. He'd be like, brah, I need to borrow your car, and he'd pretty much just grab the keys. I couldn't say no. We were that good friends, smirks Elksy. He would drift between several houses in Hawaii each winter, including one at Velzy Land, full of his Scum Valley protégés. 
they'd compete in a test match style surf series against the local VLAND crew, so beginning a long friendship between the two beaches. Elksy got on well with the Hawaiians, especially groovers like the Great Buttons, who would become a lifelong friend. With his surf store up and running back home, Elksy had the idea of selling Dahui products in Australia and asked a Hawaiian mate if he could tee up a meeting with an infamous local character by the name of Fast Eddie Rothman. Eddie, even in those days, was a pretty fearsome figure with a lot of rumours and that kind of stuff around him, recalls Elksy. I asked my mate if he could tee us up and he goes, Elksy, brah, you know where Eddie lives. He lives over there at Backyards. You go around there and ask him yourself. And I went, yeah, of course. And I went round and asked him, he recalls. After entering the yard and squeezing between two giant attack dogs on chains, he knocked on the door. Eddie answered, shirtless. He's like, what do you want? I said, hi Eddie, my name's Matt Elks, I'm from Bondi. I've been surfing here for years and I'm pretty tight with a few local crew around here. I want to buy some of your stuff to sell in my store back in Bondi. And he said, come in, recalls Elksy. Soon Elksy was part of the inner sanctum. He was taken to Dahui's headquarters in Honolulu and introduced to the rest of the family, including Clyde Eichau and Brian Amona. There, the idea was floated that Elksy would take over the company's reins in Australasia. The gig had initially been slated for Bruce Raymond, another scum valley boy who'd helped start Quicksilver. When Eddie told the family of the change of plans, Clyde piped up. He goes, Eddie, weren't we going to give it to Bruce? And Eddie goes, look around. I don't see Bruce Raymond here. Elksy is here. Let's give it to him. And that was that, recalls Elksy. Back in Australia, he'd begun dabbling in heroin, a time-honoured thorn in Bondi's side. Such is the suburb's proximity to King's Cross, the harbourside red light district where heroin first washed up on our shores. The surf community never stood a chance. I was never a junkie. I'd use it occasionally and get high for a few days, and then I'd surf for a couple of weeks and it'd be fine, says Elksy. But you'd be out at the pub or whatever, and you'd have your mates who'd be into that kind of stuff, and you'd bump into them, and they'd be like, Hey, he says, winking at me. How about it? We go back to mine and have a little hit. Elksy's face breaks into a sneaky boyhood grin, and we'd go, and I'd be high for a couple of days, he says. He managed to keep a handle on his habit for a period, but admits it was kind of torture. Because I'd be off it, and I'd be fine, and then I'd see these guys have a hit, and then I'd have to go cold turkey again. It ruined a lot of lives. It killed a couple of mates, he says. The timing couldn't have been worse with his newfound Dahui responsibilities. So he enlisted the help of a couple more Bondi guys. They were pretty deep in the drug running game at the time, as many surfers of the period were, meaning they had money to burn. By his own admission, Elksy had started dating a girl who was a heroin addict and quote, lady of the night, which in turn led one of his partners to go to Rothman behind his back and seed the story that he was fucked up and not fit to run his business in Australia. I was good mates with Eddie, but he didn't grow up with me. Eddie calls me and he goes, look, why don't you give these guys control for a year and see how they go? After that, you can have it back. You'll still be involved. And I go, yep, sweet. And that was that, says Elksy. Except the other two were hard into drugs as well. The operation moved to McLean near Yamba, where Elksy, the two partners and a female accountant lived together as they tried to find a way out of the mess. But the house became a full-blown drug den, and after Elksy convinced himself the three of them were going to off him and steal the business, he got out, moved to Byron, got on the dole, and teamed up with his old mate and former 1991 ASP Rookie of the Year, Jeremy Biles, for a bit of tube therapy. 
We spent the year getting barreled back when, you know, it was still Byron. It was groovy in that, he says, pulling a face. But it was still a farming town. It was still chilled compared to what it is now. When Buttons flew over, Elsie picked him up at the airport and they spent weeks zipping up and down the east coast. Eventually, Elsie caught wind. The Dahui license was in even worse shape than when he'd left it. The two characters had scampered, leaving only the accountant and her mother who'd loaned the business 50k. He doesn't want to elaborate on what happened next, changing topic to a story about Rob Trujillo, the bassist from Metallica, who he's known for 20 plus years and toured Australia with. It's a wild story with cameos from a young Mick Fanning and Joel Parkinson side of stage at the Big Day Out in 2003. He sums up the whole chapter with a lyric from one of his favorite bands sublime it's just the way we live and that's the way we get by he says adding with a finger pointed at me to make his point as long as you don't hurt anyone you can hurt yourself after the initial interview matt makes a point of getting in contact to further explain his memory of the dahui experience and the guilt he still harbors about the way it ended i was always loyal to eddie and the company and had been diligent in trying to establish it in oz I had it in over 70 shops in Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. Eddie knew I had no money behind me and not much business acumen, but he still supported me 100%. I've always been grateful to Eddie for giving me such a great opportunity. I think he liked the hardcore battler in me. I had credit running everywhere and owed for running and manufacturing, and I was slowly feeling completely snowed under. I was doing it all on my own, as well as the shop, and it all just got too much. Eddie backed me, and I let him down. I was devastated when things didn't work out, but I have no one else to blame but myself. Today, aged 56, Elksy is the same age as his father when he drove a car off a cliff and killed himself. After giving up professional gambling, his father had transitioned to running a car yard, but it went bankrupt after his partner embezzled all the profits. He didn't even have enough money to hit the track, and that was too much. Don't get me wrong, what my father did wasn't good, and I'd never do that. I'd never beat my wife, but he had a tough time as a kid, and he suffered terrible bouts of depression, and it came back to smack him in the head in the end. He necked himself because when the chips were down, he wanted love, but he couldn't reconcile with what he'd done, and he just said, you know what, fuck it, says Elksy, adding, it's very hard to give love if you have never received it. Elksy chooses his time carefully to tell me he's got cancer. It's nearing the end of my time at his lair, and we're sitting on the concrete lookout, passing the vape, as another misty dusk rolls in. It isn't terminal, and he's getting treatment for it, but it's caused a major re-evaluation. That was a surprise. It really strips away all the bullshit, and you're left with what's important. And that's what I've got going on with the Bali Sustainability Hub, he says. His parting gift, if he can't beat the illness, will be to create the inertia within this obscure slice of paradise for a better, more logical future. He aims to turn the area into an eco-village, which basically means harking back to traditional Balinese ways with a few western conveniences and one very significant one removed. They produce 3.4 million tonnes of plastic a year in this country. Petrochemical corporations make billions and then they dump it in Asia where they know they're not educated enough to deal with it properly. It's fucked, he says, segging into a story about an oil tanker that recently emptied its ballast a few clicks out to sea, causing an oil slick along his beach for more than a week. These fucking petrochemical industries are a law unto themselves. They fucking run governments. They own the politicians, he begins. 
Who's responsible for the shit they create? Shouldn't they be? You don't just get to go around making stuff and then washing your hands of it and going, here you go world, fucking deal with it. He fumes before cracking himself up at the absurdity of it all. The next morning he takes me on a tour of the local village. We chase narrow paths beneath a dense canopy of trees before emerging at an intersection overseen by the local copper. Elksy says g'day before taking us down the road to a bridge looking up at a mountain range. Elksy plans to set up an educational trekking path through the mountains along with another homestay. On the other side of that range is a village where no one's lived for a thousand years, he says. It will all be part of this eco-village. They blew it at the southern end, Cooter, etc. It's all Jakarta people running it, and what would they know about the environment and sustainable tourism? They're from Jakarta, he says. Elksy has his finger in half a dozen environmental initiatives in the local Regency and Greater Bali. Everything from running workshops at local schools, educating kids on handling wildlife, to waste management, water management, and environmentally sustainable tourism. He collects injured birds and nurses them back to health in his aviary. He still hasn't kicked the drug habit completely, relying on Xanax occasionally to get him to sleep, but he's highly functioning. I need a new head. If you know anyone, let me know. They have to be younger though, he laughs. No, but you'll lose everything that's in there, his wife Pudu retorts. She's from the local village, and they've been together 12 years now, producing two children of Raymond, 6, and Selena, 11, who Elksy's homestay is named after. Over a breakfast of bacon and eggs, she fills me in on their relationship. It hasn't been easy, it's a challenge, but we make it really important to be best friends. That is our focus, she says, adding, I've learned so much from Matt. I'm desperate to know more about the cancer diagnosis, but I've been afraid to ask. Elksy picks his time to tell me. We're sitting on his concrete lookout once again, scanning the bay, having just finished a meal of freshly caught mahi-mahi, tempeh, rice, vegetables, and corn frittatas, all washed down with ice-cold beer. Puru is with us, and she eyes an ant carrying a green leaf along the break wall. Elksy and I pass the vape. My feet start to swell up if I sit here too long. It's in my blood. I've got cancer in my blood, he begins. I can't get depressed about the world. It's good to talk about, but when you're in my situation, you cherish every day you've got. All the bullshit fades away. You just know what's important. Enjoy the little things, he says. A couple of plastic bottles bob in the distance. A traditional outrigger with an outboard motor powers towards shore. A couple of kids swim out to sea with a spear and goggles. When you're a young guy, you have a fit and healthy lifestyle and you think you're immortal. You think you can live forever. But you get to 56 and you get told you've got cancer and that. And what do you think that does to you? Yeah, it's fucking mind-blowing, he says. And then it hits you. I'm 56. And you realize I might not be here in 20 years. I might not be here in 10 or 5. And you start thinking about scenarios. I have cancer. I have to get treatment. I live in a country where there is none, really. Am I going to be a few thousand kilometers from my kids getting help? So yeah, you just enjoy the simple things. What's important? We're all going to die. Just enjoy being here, he says.
Thank you.